another installment in a series of podcasts where we discuss the issues and news that is relevant to the unmanned technologies community. And the SUS News podcast series is where we interview those making the news as well as those shaping the future. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan, and I'd like to offer a big welcome to our co-host, Gene Robinson. Hello out there in podcast land. Glad to be here. Oh, that's funny. Uh, this week, uh, episode 28, it's like a serial. Uh, we're going to uh, take an informative look into some current unmanned aircraft system or remotely piloted aircraft work, and also we're going to get some historical technical perspective with uh, Jeff Bland and Mike Logan. But before we bring those on, I'd like to uh, talk about some more current events. Our last show was all current events, and we, we talked about some of the news stories that were um, – in the headlines, I think folks are a little news weary. I know I am. I've switched to the Weather Channel, for, and I'm going to stay on the Weather Channel, I think, for all of November. But uh, a lot of stuff out there. And, uh, you know, one other thing that um, SAR event show we did, Gene, has cracked over 15,000 downloads, even with the... Wow. Uh, even with the satellite phone call and horrible uh, audio. But, you know, that's it's, it's edgy, man. That's what you get from right out there in the field. So that's pretty impressive, I would say. Yeah, uh, I'm tickled to death with it. Uh, that's, that's where we're headed, and that's the information that we kind of need to get out there. Yeah, we're going to have to really sit down, and uh, I think we should really hammer something out. I know it's hard you know, as, as as we've done those podcasts to pull it all together out in the field, but it would be uh, sweet if we could maybe even do like a hour and a half show and put something together. It might be technically challenging, but yeah, you know, pull up another web page where we could have pictures and some video and and really uh, put on the dog. We'll have to maybe we can do that in uh, 2013. That could be one of our goals to pull all that together in our spare time. What do you think? You know, we do uh, have a proscribed burn that we're going to be doing on an Army base here in Texas, and that may be a good candidate because we'll be flying a uh, a super bat over several hundred acres of burning Texas hinterland there, so that could be pretty interesting. It may not allow me to be able to talk much, but uh, allow people to listen in and kind of see just exactly what an ops does sound like that uh, we're we're running out here. I think it's possible we could put that together, uh, you know, put up that web page for the pictures and the video and stuff. Uh, prior to that, you got enough time? <laughs> well, I, I've enlisted the aid of uh, some help, so maybe we'll, with the help we'll get we'll get that pulled off. But I would like to. I think that would be a, a super show. I think that it would give folks an insight of just exactly what it takes to run a sterile cockpit, as they say, and most of the co-hosts. And uh, we've got all those procedures in place, and we're ready to rock and roll with it. All right. Well, let's try and pull that together. I know you're busy. Um, you know, where everybody's a little bit busy, but let's see if we could pull that together. I think that'd be a really interesting show. We could probably go long on that, and um, I think that'd be a lot of a lot of fun and very informative. Uh, I still do think things are heating up. I, I was interviewed by uh, another reporter uh, for another magazine, and uh, that topic was uh, mainly law enforcement and privacy. And it is, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing with the privacy. Uh, you know, people keep talking about that uh, privacy thing as it's something new, and I know we, we kind of beat the drum here, but, uh, you know, 
there's just there's cameras everywhere. It's like the kink song, you know. Um, I, I think it's kind of a red herring. I just think people might be a little uh, leery of the technology, and uh, you know, it's something new. Um, again, something that we have to work on. But I, hopefully, I did a good job in the interview and and kind of uh, trying to put some of those those fears to rest. Um, and I also sent that person on to speak to Tad McGear. I know. Uh, I, I think our guests know Tad, good guy, and, uh, you know, somebody who really wanted to just do um, commercial work with his uh, his aircraft, like Scan Eagle. And I know a lot of people, you tell people, oh, I know Scan Eagle. Well, you know, Scan Eagle was developed to find tuna, you know, or Aerosan. And Aerosan was, uh, you know, used as a uh, unmanned weather sond, which we will probably talk to about uh, with our guests, too. But uh, that's what I got for this week. you have anything else, Gene? Well, no, not really. I've been watching with interest some of the things that have been going on in the news with unmanned aircraft. But uh, I, I'm like you. We've kind of gotten newsed out. Thank goodness we're a week out from last Tuesday, and things have kind of settled down some. And I'm kind of hoping that we can get on with some real business now. I think folks were kind of frozen in place until we got past the election. And uh, it should I think you're right. I think things are going to start heating up a little bit more. Uh, it's the, this juggernaut is not going to be stopped. Uh, robotics are, are going to make a significant jump, I think, in the next five to ten years, and we're going to be right in the middle of it. So I'm ready to go. Uh, that's just the way it's going to be, and, and, and folks are going to start getting used to it and accept it in a lot of different ways. Yeah, and you know, and I think as soon as uh, the technology gets out the gate, I think people will. I mean, they're already, you know, there's robotics all around us. You know, it's the same deal with the uh, the ground robots and uh, the police already use. You know, uh, people are very used to that. I mean, you know, almost any, um, you know, let's say hostage situation or bomb situation in any city, if it's a suspected, they send the robot in, and you know, nobody even thinks about it. It's got a camera on it. Anyway, I'm still out here in NIE 13.1 at White Sands, and, uh, you know, we're, we're still doing experiments. That's almost over, and I'm looking forward. Not that I don't love the desert. You know, I love it out here. It's beautiful. But uh, I'm, I'm burnt to a crisp, and I'm ready to get out. I'm ready to, to go home. So hopefully next week we'll be uh, from the... Um, from the home office. But anyway, without further ado, I want to bring on our guests. We have today we have uh, Jeff Bland and we have Mike Logan. Uh, both of these guys um, I met through the uh, airspace integration effort. Um, they work for NASA. These guys have been doing work with unmanned aircraft for years and years. And um, basically, I'd like to bring them on, and we're going to talk about some historical perspective on, on using these things, and then moving into the future, and some stuff that's on the uh, on the plate now. So, without further ado, I would hope that you, you gentlemen could give us some information on yourselves, and how you got here, and we'll start with uh, Jeff. Hey, good morning, y'all. Um, I've been at the uh, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center's uh, Wallace Flight Facility for Oh, a couple decades, and first started working. Uh, sorry, <laughs> a couple decades. Uh, started working UAS um, in the early '90s. So one of our original objectives was to start using them for atmospheric research and sensor development. Um, so that's an extension of our work at Goddard, which uh, is uh, uh, in the Earth Science area, where we use. Um, airplanes and aircraft to augment our satellite-based 
and uh, rocket-based research. So it's a natural extension. Yeah, excellent. I, I know you've uh, you know over the years we've talked and you've, you've you've done a lot of stuff, and I hope to delve into that a little bit more. But let's bring Mike Logan on. Mike, could you uh, give the uh, audience a little bio about yourself, sir? Sure. Uh, I worked for about a dozen years out in the real world before I went to work for NASA, and uh, I've been there, uh, like Jeff, about two decades now. Uh, the last uh, last ten years, actually, I've been heading up something called the Small Unmanned Aerial Vehicle Laboratory at uh, NASA's Langley Research Center there in Hampton, Virginia. And uh, we've done a, a lot of um, development of new types of, of UAS and uh, different types of configurations. We also look at uh, application development and, uh, you know, seeing if there are missions that uh, a small platform could actually perform, you know, state-of-the-art pushed a little bit. So uh, we're kind of all about pushing that state-of-the-art. And uh, and uh, done a lot of good work. Uh, been trying to uh, engage in the uh, airspace integration activity here over the last uh, three or four years, as you know. And uh, we're making progress. It's uh, a lot like pulling uh, you know, boat anchor through a peat bog, but uh, we're making progress. That's a good uh, good visual analogy there, Mike. I like that one. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I want to talk about that, but... Um, First, but before we we like we're going to be all over the map, and that's okay because this this show uh, we kind of pride ourselves on this being a real casual conversation, and uh, so we're not real rigid here. So whatever subjects come up and we talk about, we'll be fine. But I did want to I, I want to touch a little bit on um, some of that historical perspective. I know you went into it a little bit, uh, Jeff. And I know, you know, you were out there um, in the 90s, you were doing stuff with this uh, technology, and uh, you, there were all kinds of different things. And I know there were limitations with sensors and whatnot, but maybe you could speak to uh, some of the stuff that you were doing in the early days uh, and, and maybe kind of bring that through where we are today with, with the miniaturization of sensors and whatnot. Is that possible? Oh, sure. Um just a little more about about uh, the Waltz Flight Facility. We have um, the lead for a lot of suborbital work. Not just um, NASA is not just involved in the satellites, but we work with the airplanes to take measurements to validate our satellite measurements or to do detailed studies. We also have a uh, a balloon program that can carry large payloads or small payloads. We have an active meteorological balloon program, and we have a sounding rocket program. Sounding rockets uh, go to space, but they're uh, not orbital. They're suborbital, so they return to Earth, and you get about 10 minutes of observations, and there's a wide variety of disciplines. Well, the UAVs um, and UAS became an extension of that kind of work, uh, not just for sensor development, but for actually doing process studies and for validating uh, some of the measurements. Originally, uh, the very first program I worked on was the uh, Zaposaurus program, which was an electric airplane designed in 1993 to carry uh, water vapor sensors. This was in uh, conjunction with some balloon-based measurements. So we are trying to actually develop the water vapor sensors using this electric platform back in 
the uh, early 90s. Um, it took approximately 20 people to fly an airplane that, wo- that weighed 20 pounds. It was balloon launched because the electric motors weren't powerful enough. Um, so nowadays, you know, the concept of a hand-launched airplane that can fly for an hour is, is just fantastic uh, development that um, certainly we didn't have access to. The Zaposaurus had 77 different battery cells in it just to uh, fly for uh, about 10 minutes. So we uh, we went from from that and worked with the X-Drone and the uh, TURN from BAI, developing our, our small uh, spectrometer systems. Again, looking primarily at the uh, the measurement side and uh, Capitalizing on the on the available technologies to try to try to augment what we could do, uh, on into today by way of uh, flying the same spectrometer development uh, systems, the follow-on ones on the Aerosonde, and uh, now we're integrating uh, similar systems in both uh, the NASA Sierra and NASA Econa aircraft. Well, you know, both of that that is a very uh, informative. Let's say timeline uh, that you've given us, and uh, both of you guys kind of hit on this. Uh, but that is a that's another thing is talking to uh, a lot of reporters, and I've been getting interviewed for all kinds of stuff. We're giving people information for stories, and it runs the uh, the, the gambit there in the different sizes of publications. But most people have no idea that this technology isn't just brand new. It's just out of the gate right now, and you know. I, I know you guys, we've talked about a lot of these applications and possible uses in the past, and people are like, well, do you think they could use it for agriculture? Yes, I think they can, you know, or all these different uses that people are thinking are totally new. And I'm like, you know, prior to 2007, it was all legal, man. We were, you know, uh, everybody was out doing, you could do uh, experiments or photography or, you know, whatever you wanted to do. And, you know, the the thing since 2007 is, as I really looked at this technology, and even like you're talking about Zaposaurus, and it's kind of funny and all the rest of that, but the technology and the advancements prior to 2007 made this uh, technology the great, like, say, scientific equalizer, you know? No more did it take a full-size aircraft and all that money and the licensing and everything else. You could just go out and do this yourself. You know, uh, and see that go away has made me kind of sad, especially that we've been on a five-year hiatus. Thoughts? Well, sure, Patrick. Um, um, if I may, the um, we had an airplane just prior to 2007 called the Twin Cam. It was based on a on a model airplane, and it carried two cameras. It weighed two pounds. It was made of foam, and we were using it to fly over the agricultural field to actually look at uh crop stress and help in the uh the uh nitrogen applications and the and the um the um the water distribution and so this was a an airplane that cost 4 or 500 dollars including including the sensor system and students and uh researchers uh very easy to deploy um and uh, all of a sudden it's something that uh you have a huge gradient to to get access to that kind of technology today, so it's a little disappointing. Yes, I remember that. Uh, I remember Twin Cam, and I remember the work you were doing with that. And boy, you know, uh, when you describe the aircraft, and it was two pounds, and you know, you had to. And I'm 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 really in my mind's eye trying to uh, conjure up, you know, this little aircraft with horns on it. <laughs> 
you know, this big menace to to the uh, airspace. But anyway, you know, besides that, uh, I know it's it's kind of disappointing. But uh, you know, and and Mike, what what kind of stuff were you working on prior to uh, 2007? Well, let's see. I guess uh, uh, back in uh, 2002, uh, we'd actually one of our first exercises with uh, the uh, Marine Corps Warfighting Lab came to us that hey, you know, uh, uh, we're thinking about uh, the the whole uh, ISR thing, and you know, we're we're kind of thinking about you know, could you uh, could you guys make a vehicle that might be able to I don't know, uh, you know, be taken out of a backpack and tossed in the air and then go over the next hill and take a look at you know, see who's shooting at us and that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, we really kind of want something that uh, can can go maybe, I don't know, maybe five miles away and, and get there really fast and then then putter around for an hour sending us video back and so forth. Well, at that time, uh, you know, the uh, things like the lithium batteries uh, were fine for, you know, laptops and not even all that great for that. And, of course, you know, the only type of battery technology that you could really use was, you know, the, the nickel metal hydrides. And so we designed a vehicle that, sure enough, and, oh, by the way, did we neglect to mention we wanted to fit in a 15 by 15 by 5-inch box that, you know, you could carry. So, you know, we, we designed a vehicle, and it's kind of like, well, okay, you've got three major requirements here. Pick any two because the technology just didn't support that at the time. But, uh, you know, we, we did a little baby duck you know, twin ducted fan uh, that sure enough could go 60 miles an hour uh, or it could go, you know, about a half an hour. But uh, it was a neat little plane and, uh, you know, we kind of pushed that envelope out and then, you know, they used what they what they learned from us to, to come up with some requirements and, you know, eventually that became uh, the Dragon Eye that I think everybody's aware of. And, uh, you know, the... the it's interesting, you know, Jeff mentioned the uh, X-Drone. There's a perfect example of how technology enables things. Uh, did you know that the the flight control computer, if you want to call it that, for the X-Drone, actually has one gyro in it, and it's mounted on a 45-degree, and that's it. So it's hmm. basically a wing leveler. And, it, and it's interesting because the box is about... Oh, I guess eight inches by seven inches by about five, and it weighs about three pounds. Well, hmm. now of course you know you've got these little boards that are you know maybe two inches square that have a three-axis gyro, a three-axis accelerometer, a magnetometer, you know the the whole airspeed, altitude, altimeter. You know, oh, and by the way, the processor and you know follows waypoints and GPS and all that kind of stuff. And it weighs, you know, two ounces. Grand, so, yeah. So, you know, the, the, the whole uh, technology in uh, men's technology and so forth really has enabled uh, an incredible explosion in the ability of these small platforms to do things. Uh, we did a, uh, a tilt wing. You may have seen... Uh, some of the tilt wings that we brought to the, uh, for example, the AVSI shows, where the uh, tilt wings uh, tilt differentially. Well, you know, early on when we did that back in 2003-ish, 2004-ish, we designed that to be a kind of a search and rescue vehicle that could fly, you know, into a partially collapsed building 
you know, in hover mode. Uh, the problem with, with a lot of hover mode things is you've got to launch it from far enough away to be able to, to, to do you some good because you may not be able to access that fairly, you know, you may not be able to get close to the building, right? You may not want to get very close to the building. So you got to go out a ways and then hover around. So we designed this, this uh, kind of interesting VTOL to be able to do, to do that, uh, something that would have halfway decent fixed wing performance and then transition to a hover and hover around, look, you know, peek through the windows, go in through the doorways, look for the survivors because, you know, you don't really want to uh, risk a team. I know here in uh, uh, where I'm at, a city called Chesapeake, Virginia, we had a couple of firefighters that uh, uh, were killed because they went into a building and they didn't know how involved the building was in the fire, and it turned out that uh, they had no overhead assets to be able to determine that. So they went in and started looking around, and the roof collapsed off. So, you know, those are the kinds of, you know, real-world applications that, that you know, we like to focus on because, you know, they make a, a, a real difference. Right. Well, and you're hitting on, you know, some good points that we talk about uh, here all the time. You know, it's, it's very hard to find one tool that can do all the jobs, and, and for some of the reasons that you just mentioned. You know, you may not want to – I mean, it's the same thing like if you were going to do some uh, radiation sampling or, you know, uh, go to Fukushima and do some work. You know, you're not going to want to drive up next to the building, park the car, jump out, and, you know, horse around there all day. You're going to want to be off at a safe distance. Uh, and then, yes, then you would probably want to do some hovering and some other things. But you, you make a good point. I know where you're coming from. So how's the work progressing on that, that uh, aircraft? Oh, pretty well. Uh, we, in fact, uh, just this past summer, we uh, did kind of a, uh, a uh, next-generation version of that. Uh, I had a couple of uh, summer students that uh, I put to work, and uh, we designed and built a... Uh, a fixed wing tilt wing that really is kind of interesting. The is, has a very high aspect ratio, aspect about 20 wing. So it's really designed for about a two-hour flight time, and, and yet it can take off vertically at the same at the same you know token. So hmm. uh, we're just getting started with uh, the you know controls work on on that. We did have a good first flight of that in, in conventional mode. It's interesting, you know, when you when you have a group of students that uh, you know just work their tails off for a pretty significant length of time. Uh, in fact, we went from you know scribbling on a marker board to first flight in a little over six weeks. And uh, so they, yeah, that's that's pretty impressive for a brand new design. And uh, I tell you what, there's there's very little that you you know in terms of satisfaction for uh, you know. A student to see something that they've really worked on very very hard, you know, take flight, go up in the air, fly around, and come back and land, and you know, you come back with the same number of pieces you left with. That you know is is something that they will take with them for the rest of their career, and I think it, in a, in a lot of ways it helps solidify in students' minds that you know that's what I want to do. I want to make a difference. Well, and, you know, it's funny you hit that point because I noticed the same. I was uh, mentoring some uh, kids at the high school robotics club, and we did uh, an ROV, and, uh, you know, we also – I tried to take the Cracker Barrel out there. 
But the poor Cracker Barrel hadn't been flown in two years, and I guess in the heat, the wing had warped, and that was pretty hard to get altitude with a warped wing. But anyway, the kids, uh, the upshot on that was uh, I saw this, I witnessed the same thing. Like, uh, when they put this thing together and the uh, the ROV was successful, it was a sea perch, and they put it in a 3D environment, they were like, wow, you know, this is amazing. And then even flying around, the little flying we did, this is amazing, and I totally agree with you. And that kind of touches on, we, we did have a little conversation prior to the show about uh, the STEM or STEAM concept, which the science, technology, engineering, and math uh a curriculum, but we're also adding the art into that, and I want to give credit to um, was it Josh from Boca Bearings. Was that right, Gene? That is correct. Who actually gave us the steam concept? But I, I really like that idea. I just kind of shared it with you guys. I, I think that uh, you know the arts adds a lot to it, but I agree. People say, "Oh, we need to get kids interested in in science and, and uh, technology." Well, you know what? If you if you go out there and you give them this type of uh, training, I find that they're soaking it up like a sponge. You know, uh, I'm finding the same thing that you were talking about, Mike. You show them, hey, we can we can sit here uh, and on the whiteboard pick a mission or or uh, something that you want to do, either commercial or science. Uh, let's think about it, and then uh, when we come up with this mission, let's design something that can um, fulfill that mission. And uh, you're, when they put it together and they're doing the mission, man, they're going nuts. You know. And I know, Jeff, you and your wife do a lot of work with the kids. I know you guys do some rocket stuff and whatever uh, whatever else. Would you like to add to that? Oh, sure. We've um, extended from the work with the uh, fixed-wing electric airplanes uh, to the um, surface, surface realm, and we're currently using a, a little boat called uh, Rover, a remotely operated vehicle for environmental research. It's a... It's a shallow water boat that's actually um, being used to gather information to support the biology uh, teaching and research at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. So uh, with some uh, NASA sponsorship, we're able to have the students uh, build these, uh, these uh, platforms, and they're actually making a whole fleet of different, different types and uh, instrumenting them with in-water sensors so that they can show the extension all the way from the design, the fabrication, the preparation and testing and training proficiency, all the way to data acquisition and analysis in multidisciplinary teams so that it's it's a complete a complete experience um that, that kind of nails the um the the reason for for why you're you know you're putting all the effort in in into into the work and we've done the same thing with uh, with kites as well we have a, a program called Aerocats where we have um, actually uh, a, a device that we use to carry some of the instrumentation again this is uh, used uh, down to the middle school level again it's used to show that you can use these tools not just for fun and because they're cool, because they are, but uh, also to to really do uh, meaningful, make meaningful measurements and meaningful observations and draw a conclusion based on the work that you've just done. And so we're we're trying to you know extend the whole um, 
act, hands-on type activities and and um, observation experience to a variety of of different different methods. And would you find too at the end that it's uh, the the same type of a steam builder that uh, Mike was talking about with the kids? Without question. Yeah, without question, Patrick. I I really agree. We've had uh, several students that have gone on to to careers. Um, my wife got a uh, has a has a rocket program. She supports the the sounding rocket program, and got a postcard from Antarctica from one of her students at one point. Um, he was so thrilled to have gotten the opportunity, and he'd gotten the opportunity because of the rockets. And so now he's writing from Antarctica and looks forward to. I mean, where do you go from there? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I think that that uh, I think that that's one of the things that's kind of missing in school um you know is this hands-on thing and then the um coming back with uh you know hey we i can do this i can actually build this i can make this and it can actually do something and it works um and i really think that that's a uh it's something that uh, we need to build on into the future and uh i don't know i i kind of left my uh robotics club high and dry and not by choice, but, uh, you know, we talked about that, too. We're kind of out of time. But I would like to, or out of time as far as uh, personal time, I have little free time. But I would like to, uh, you know, we talked about this STEM thing, and, uh, you know, I kind of look at it as kind of an open source type of uh, education thing. And, uh, you know, get out there. I think people need to, if you have these skills, you need to get out there and you need to share them with the next generation. You know, I, I definitely feel that that's important because these kids, they're they're out there. They want to learn this stuff. They want to do it. It's just taking the time and finding the people who understand the technology. And I think that that's another thing with uh, with this, with STEM or STEAM is it's hard to find the people who who actually have, um, let's say, the experience or the real world experience and the the drive to go out there and teach these kids. So Patrick, we got a Patrick, you know. I've got a good anecdote about that. Um, okay. I had a, uh, I, yep, I had a student who, uh, you know, he just finished his bachelor's degree, you know, bright, shiny paper, and I uh, had him for a summer, and uh, we were working on a uh, flying wing. And as you probably know, flying wings are notoriously finicky in terms of how they fly and how you design them and all that kind of stuff. So what I wanted to do was kind of guide them through a design process on that, and so I actually had them uh, say, okay, well, this is the kind of thing that we're looking at. Let's um, let's do a subscale version of that, and let's go take some of this, this pink foam, this quarter-inch thick pink foam, and we'll just do a, a plan form version of that, and uh, we'll we'll see, you know, where the CG needs to be and, you know, what the sweep angles need to be and stuff like that. We'll just do it in glider mode first. And so, you know, they, they cut out this plan form, and, of course, they're all looking at me like, you know, I'm, I'm speaking some foreign language or whatnot. Because, you know, they've, they've been taught in school, you know, airfoils do this, that kind of stuff. And so we started working through it and, you know, chucking this airfoil. And, and it flies, and they're confused because they thought you actually had to have an airfoil to fly. Well, okay, yeah, so a slab of foam is, is, is an airfoil of sorts, but it's a flat plate. And they just couldn't quite grasp that a flat plate could fly until they saw it. 
So we started doing that, and then we put the you know control surfaces on the flat plate, and started doing that, and you know got it to glide to a nice you know easy landing. Then we put a motor on it, and you know it kind of had some issues, so we fixed that. And then you know we had, we got it to where you know it would fly straight and level, and then it uh, just nosed off to one side. And so I asked this, you know, student that had just finished his bachelor's degree, you know, okay, what causes that? And I get a deer in the headlights look. So it's like, we we call that lateral directional instability. And he says, oh, yeah, okay, I've heard of that. I said, now how do you fix it? And I get another deer in the headlights look. What about a tail? Oh, oh, yeah, okay. Well, so, so how big should it be? And I said, well, you know, it just needs to be big enough to keep it from slicing off anymore. <laughs> oh. But, you know, they've, they've heard about all this stuff, and they take the classes, and they, you know, can regurgitate the formulas and, and work homework problems in the class, but it doesn't really have any meaning for them until it actually gets put into an airplane, and you start seeing these phenomena in real life. And you realize, oh. Okay, I know how to analyze that. I know how to fix that because I took that in this class. I need to go dig this up and work this problem. And now it's a real problem. It's not just some, you know, uh, homework assignment that a you know, goofy professor just gave. Yes, it's uh, the theory and practice, you know. And I, and, and I think you're hitting on a good point. I think you need both of those. Um, this is why you're doing all that math. Yep. <laughs> right yeah, right. Here. Yep. And uh, if I can extend, uh, yeah. oh, I just wanted to um, extend what you were saying there, Mike. Is that the, um, you know, getting him to think and and put in practice and getting him out of the box. And part of that goes back to the whole stem, con- the steam concept, Patrick, that you mentioned, where where uh, allowing the students and giving them the space and encouraging them to try new things. Uh, because that's ultimately what what art is 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 trying something that hasn't been done before, and um, so it's it's good to good to try to try to build stuff you know uh, sculptures, uh, airplanes is art that's always been a um, kind of a theme of our work here. So sorry, your your turn, Mike. Yeah, Jeff, I was just going to mention to to Patrick the the thing that you and I just uh, did not too long ago. Uh, there are various student competitions, uh, both at the, you know, high school as well as the college level. And uh, one of them, they were looking at, uh, well, gee, you know, we need a, a good uh, multidisciplinary design challenge uh, for uh, this competition. And so Jeff and I worked up, uh, hey, you know, let's let's think out of the box here and say. Design us a, an unmanned system that can not only detect the fire, but go actually fight the fire robotically and by air. And so we went and looked at, you know, okay, the uh, here was a list of, over the last 10 years of all the wildfires that have occurred in the U.S., you know, particularly the large ones. You know, uh, where were they? How big were they? How quickly did they spread? Uh, and got a lot of good data for that and said, okay, here's the design challenge. You know, you've got water 
sources about this far away from the, the start of the fire. The fire is growing by this amount per day. And, you know, if you had, you know, landing spots on a grass strip that are this big and maybe the closest real runway is several miles away, uh, you need to design a system to be able to do that. And, oh, by the way, uh, the, the grading criteria would be something like, you know, uh, how many dollars does it take to put out the fire? Because ultimately, uh, you know, the cost of firefighting is incredible. Uh, here locally, uh, we had, uh, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Great Dismal Swamp, but it is a, uh, a large area. It's actually a, a National Wildlife Refuge now. But this uh, Great Dismal Swamp actually has some peat bog, you know, swampy area. And last year it caught on fire, and it started, I guess, the first week of August, and it was officially put out, I think, the third week of November. So it actually burned that long. That one fire cost roughly $12.5 million to fight over that period of time. Uh, and I can tell you, since my house is uh, just due north of uh, the swamp, uh, there were times during the summer that I couldn't see two blocks down my street because the, the thick smoke was that bad. And it actually impacted travel into Norfolk Airport, the uh, air quality. We actually had a code purple. I'd never heard of a code purple air quality alert before, but it was so bad they were encouraging people just to stay indoors, period. So these yeah. are the kinds of things that, you know, have a huge, huge impact on, on people. And, you know, this this whole unmanned, you know, particularly the unmanned aerial system, can really make a huge difference. Uh, and that particular fire, oh, by the way, uh, was started by lightning. Huh. Yeah, that would, uh, I'm sure, you know, that uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Ireland in the wintertime. <laughs> and they burn the turf. The peat, oh my God, if you got allergies, it's horrible. That must have been horrible, all that uh, that peat burning. Oof. Oh, it, it was bad. It was bad. Lot, lots of uh, antihistamine and decongestants and everything. And, and like I said, there there was one day uh, where they told everybody just to stay indoors, period. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure that was, uh, that was horrible. But uh, I agree, you know, those are ways to think about it. Uh, I definitely think uh, when you inject the art folks into it and the left brain thinking uh, helps with application. And also, you know, the other thing I was trying to tell the, the kids uh, that at the high school um, when I was mentoring them, and they'd build a uh, first robot and whatever else, and it wasn't very attractive, you know, there were other, I, I kept uh, looking to, there's a group out of Moffat called the Space Cookies, and they're a uh, bunch of girls, and boy, I'll tell you what, they're robot, powder-coated, the welding is, is uh, you know, something, I mean, it's, it's enviable, it's so nice, the welding, I was asking the girls themselves, did you guys lay these beads down, or did somebody do this for you? And I guess they they get a little help from the the guys out at uh, Moffat Field, but you know um, you need to. I think I mean there's the utilitarian part of things, but uh, it's also good to make your creation look, let's say, um, sellable, something that somebody may want to invest in, or something that somebody may want to buy. You guys agree well, with that? 
Yeah, I had a mentor back uh, when I worked out in the real world. This guy, you know, his first job was uh, uh, designing a uh, wing fence for the uh, Vought uh, uh, F4U Corsair back in World War II. And, uh, you know, he'd been working in the industry, you know, 40 years and some odd. And, you know, one of his common expressions was, uh, looks good, flies good. Right. You really make an airplane that looks good. Not only will it, not only is it likely to fly really good, but it's more likely to sell than the other guys. It looks like a dump truck. Exactly. People, you know, I mean, look at, you know, I, I, I give Apple as an example. You know, um, I'm a devotee. I mean, I, I, I like Apple stuff. I like turning it on and it works. I like that. Uh, you know, the design is nice, too, and I think that people like the design and the technology thing. Um, and I agree, people gravitate towards things that look better, and and that's, I think, part of the message. If you have something, you put that little extra effort into it, and it looks more polished, people are, are more willing to accept it, even if it, it works just as good as the dump truck, you know. That's my personal take on it. Jeff, did you have anything you'd like to add on that? Oh, sure. I think it's... Um it's also an opportunity for for people to express what um, you know what they'd like to see. It, a uniqueness, as it will, designing for uniqueness. There really is no right answer for any one problem, and that goes back to the the challenge that Mike was describing for firefighting. We tried to make the the uh, rules and guidelines um, while having specific requirements that they needed to try to address to give the students enough space so that they could be creative and try stuff and um, maybe come up with an answer that hadn't been uh, previously previously thought of or at least previously exercised. And so sure, yes, absolutely. Um, If you have some kind of pride in ownership as you build your, your work, it uh, it's reflected to to others, and also if you kind of stretch the envelope, then it makes it um, a little a little unique. And um, you know, developing a style is important. I agree with that, and I like that concept too. You know, give them the latitude to to approach it. Now, I've I've uh. I've over latitude myself in that department. You know, I'm trying to make, I mean, I, you can take it too far, trying to make stuff uh, look good. And I may have put on a couple of too many coats of paint <laughs> where somebody got a little chubby and I couldn't get her off the ground. That has happened. So there is a happy medium uh, to that concept. But, oh, absolutely. Uh, looked great until I crashed it. You know? Looked great. Well, you know, the good news is if it doesn't get off the ground, uh, the good news is that if it doesn't get off the ground, it looks great sitting on the mantelpiece. Yeah, exactly. That model. Exactly. Well, I tell this funny story. You know, when I was doing uh, the commercial aerial photography before 2007, you know, I was and and the FAA got involved, and I was calling it UAV photography. One of the first questions people would ask when they'd get me on the phone is, hey, can I see the UAV? And I'd be like, oh, geez, I can't bring this slow stick out there. And so I'd be like, well, it's in the shop being calibrated, you know, precision instrument. It's it's very fragile, yada, yada, yada. So uh, I would spin this big yarn because, you know, when people see the Cracker Barrel, they're a little underwhelmed. It gets the job done, but, you know, it's not very exciting. 
Well, you know, it's a style, Patrick. The, I think that Cracker Barrel did did the job and and outlined precisely the um, the type of technologies that are needed. It doesn't have to to look like a jet. It can it can look like a Cracker Barrel. It it, it has a home. <laughs> well, yes, it was a nice color. <laughs> exactly, we all like that. That the bright red was a safety thing, but uh, well, that and you know to show people how I mean down to the, the the absolute rudimentary level what could be done, and that's that's why I like the Cracker Barrel. But it was kind of funny, you know. People are like, I want to see the UAV. Where is it? You know, it's not here. So you know, uh, I was kind of doing a tongue in cheek thing with uh, the whole uh, it being called a UAV by the uh, the FAA and whatnot. But anyway, we didn't even get into that, and that's good. I had an excellent discussion. I really enjoyed myself uh, with some of the uses that you guys have done and the directions you're going. We've got about five seconds. I will say goodbye to everyone. Thanks again for coming on. Have a great week, and we will see everyone next week. Thank you, Patrick. Bye.